we're going to be in Amos chapter 8 tonight. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1063. I join with, um, with what Jim prayed for us that we would hear tonight. Hearing from the Lord, understanding scripture, knowing God's plan and purpose, these are very significant things for believers. Yet they can cause significant stress, suspense, worry, and even doubt. Tonight's message from Amos is a severe warning for us regarding these spiritual matters of hearing, understanding, and knowing. But it's also a great message of encouragement that the merciful heart of our Lord is to send his word to those who would receive it and obey it. It's exactly what we said together in the Shema and exactly what we just sang together right now, that we would hear the Lord's word and obey it. We know from the New Testament that it's not merely enough to hear the word, to know of the word, if we are not obeying it and putting it into practice. So if you have been crying out for something from the Lord, I pray that you would hear and understand tonight. If you've not been asking something of the Lord, or if you've been avoiding asking something of the Lord, I pray that your heart would grow to desperation to hear and to understand and to know from him. So we will be studying in chapter 8, another vision that the Lord gives Amos. So Roger, if you don't mind to to put that slide up. Like the other visions that Amos has, this one is aimed at a particular group really a subgroup that is in Israel who are merchants or sellers, tradespeople. Yet its meaning is for all of us. So the vision that Amos has is called the vision of summer fruit. And maybe in your Bibles above chapter 8 it says vision of summer fruit. And so really that's what everything kind of stems from. The Lord is going to give Amos, a vision, and the first three verses of the chapter. And then the remaining verses of the chapter are a final warning. So there are nine chapters in Amos's book, and so we are approaching the conclusion. So even now, in chapter 8, the Lord is pleading with Israel through a final warning. So there's, there's a few different things that that Amos will share with us as a part of this warning. God has a charge. He has an oath he will take. There will be a judgment. Amos will describe how God will ultimately destroy those who oppose him. And finally, the famine that God will send on Israel. And so that's what we're going to read about. We're going to read about this vision of summer fruit and what it means for Israel and for us. So I mentioned that this vision is given to a subgroup because each of Amos's visions are really talking about specific situations that maybe not everyone in Israel is guilty of, 
but there is a place that everyone in Israel should learn from and understand how to apply um, what Amos is sharing. So let's read together. We'll read all of chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them any more. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river heave, and subside like the river of Egypt. It shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day, fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. All right. So this, of course, like all of Amos's words, is uh, pretty powerful and, and somewhat difficult to understand because there is so much meaning and so much context and so much that he is poetically describing. So it says that, that in the first few verses that Amos saw this basket of summer fruit. Um, we've got a basket right here. I guess we could have put some fruit in it, but if you imagine that this is full of even um, bananas, let's say. I, I don't really know if bananas qualify as summer fruit. I eat a banana every morning, and Rebecca usually buys five at the beginning of the week, so I have one Monday through Friday. By Thursday, the fruit is starting to spoil a little bit. There's dots forming on the banana peel, and I'm kind of lamenting that I have to eat this banana that's not quite as ripe as those on the first day, right? Amos is describing fruit that is ripe. That's what summer fruit is. 
So this, this vision appears almost mild, a basket of fruit, until we put it into perspective of God's judgment throughout the rest of the chapter. The fruit represents harvest time, the ripening of time and produce for plucking, cutting, and reaping. It tells the readers and us that Amos was talking about Israel like harvest time. Normally a time that they would wish to celebrate God's providence, right? The harvest comes in, it's time to celebrate and give thanks and be grateful for what we have. But Amos is saying that you, Israel, you, God's people, are ripe for judgment like this fruit. Their sins were great and complete. They were ripe for plucking. They had not turned away from their sins and to return to God. So this harvest would be a harvest of judgment. God would not let them sin anymore before his judgment was to come upon them. So this Hebrew word for fruit is pronounced ketz. And this isn't really important how it's spelled. It's spelled Q-A-Y-I-T-S, ketz. And this is interesting because in verse 2, Amos says, Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. This word end here is pronounced ketz, Q-E-T-S. So Amos is really making a play on words here to pair the fruit, the ripeness for judgment that Israel is, and the end. It is the end for Israel. There will be no more visions. There will be no more messages. There will be no more of God's mercy upon mercy upon mercy. It's the end. So God explained to Amos the extent of his judgment on Israel. It says in verse 3, And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day. Right, the songs that we sang tonight, imagine them being replaced with wailing and mourning. Says the Lord, Many bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. This is a really morbid, terrible thing to read and to hear. But Amos says, worship will be replaced with lament, and there will be bodies everywhere. We, we read in a couple chapters ago how there would be bodies everywhere. When God's judgment would come, that there would be war on whole cities and villages and in all of Israel, and there would be bodies everywhere, and that no one who was alive would even speak of it. They wouldn't speak of it because there's nothing to speak of. This judgment that Israel would receive was understood. Likewise, when judgment comes upon us, there is nothing to say. There is not a justification needed, an excuse to provide. We know God's word. We know his law. We know his mercy upon us to this moment leads us to repentance. And so did Israel. So this would lead to judgment 
and silence. The next section we'll read, verses 4 through 6. Amos says, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. So all of these things probably seem familiar to us because they're things to some degree that Amos has mentioned before. They, it is signifying taking advantage of the poor. Um, I, I want to start this by saying in verse 4, I wish I could start this statement over, but in verse 4 it says, hear this. This is the word Shema that we've sung tonight. This is the word that Amos uses again and again to, to try and grab their attention so as to say, you know this. You know what I'm about to say is true. And then he describes all of their misdealings. Um, these merchants would do whatever it took to get richer from the poorest in their nation. They destroyed the poor, the weak, and the needy just because they could and because they were wealthy. So in verse 5 it says that they would be saying, When will the new boon be passed that we might sell grain? When will the festivals be over so we can go back to work taking advantage of the poor? And the Sabbath that we may trade wheat. When will this day of rest stop? When will the preaching in the synagogue stop that we can go back to work taking advantage of those less fortunate? They wanted to sell grain. They wanted to sell the, uh, open the wheat market and make money. So in the second half of verse 5, it says, um, making the ephah small and the shekel large. So what they wanted to do was to take advantage on both ends. They wanted to take advantage of the buy, uh, of those that were selling them the product by having uneven scales. And then they wanted to re-uneven the scales for those that they were selling to. So these are people whose greed knew no bounds, no end. There's lots of understandings about how they would do this, how they would make a, uh, put a false bottom in the bushel, or how they would overweigh the scales, how they would lend their craftiness to taking advantage of other people. And this dishonesty affected the poor most. They were taking advantage of the rich who were selling them, but this dishonesty affected the poor more than anyone. Now, I don't think that God is okay with taking advantage of rich people. But there are scriptures upon scriptures upon scriptures about taking care of their neighbor, taking care of their countrymen, and taking care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Yet these acts really targeted them. goes on to say in verse 6 that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. I think it's chapter 2 where Amos talks about this, this judgment against Israel that he talks about that they would enslave other Israelites 
for the cost of a pair of sandals. I've read that these sandals that they wore would have been made of bark and worth about 50 cents in today's dollars. Can you imagine enslaving someone for a price so little as 50 cents? It just shows their hearts, and it shows that God is not okay with any type of dishonesty, any type of manipulation and advantage-taking. Amos went further to say that they would stoop so low, it says in the, in the last part of verse 6, and even sell the bad wheat, question mark. See, they didn't even want to sell the bad wheat, right? Y'all know about the bad wheat. I don't really understand the bad wheat, but the, the chaff came out of the sieve, and they wouldn't even sell that to the poor. So they're so greedy, yet they won't even sell the bad wheat because they don't want to help the poor in any way. So they take advantage where they can, but here they refuse to even give nourishment to the poor. The merchants knew that no one else would buy the chaff but the poor who were so desperate to eat it, even though it would have no nutrients and was better than nothing, yet they wouldn't even sell them that. So really Amos is describing what their sin is, reminding them of what they know about themselves, and holding them accountable to God's law. So verse 7, Amos says, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Now we've read a couple of times in Amos how the Lord has sworn by himself or sworn by his holiness. But now the Lord is swearing by the pride of Jacob. There's, there's a lot of debate over what this means. There's places in scripture that describe this pride that Israel had. And, and not, not just negative pride, but their confidence in the Lord that would have been a good thing. Their confidence in the Lord's covenants and who the Lord was and what he promised them. So if there's anything that we should be boastful of, like Paul says in Corinthians, it's boasting in the Lord. right? So maybe there could be a good place that Israel was proud of being God's people. But I think there's more to this. I think that really this is talking about the Lord is swearing by the pride of Jacob their arrogance and overconfidence that the Lord wouldn't punish them. He is comparing the sureness of his holiness with the certainty of their pride. He's swearing by it. He is leveling his holiness with their sinfulness. Sometimes it's easy to think that maybe our sin isn't that bad. Maybe it's not really keeping us from the Lord. Maybe we're really okay. We're just a little bit off kilter maybe, but we're not really out of bounds. The Lord tells Israel that his holiness is is as certain as their overconfidence. The Lord goes on to say that surely he will not forget any of their works, any of their deeds. The animals that they sacrificed to false gods, 
the scales that they overweighed, the sin that covered them with darkness, the Lord would not forget them. This word in Hebrew for forget, it means to forget and it means to cease to care. So the Lord says he will not forget and he will not cease to care. We hear about how the Lord forgets our sins. Those are repented for sins. The sin that Amos is talking about right now is sin that has been levied chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And they have been refused to be acknowledged. And so the Lord says, no, I will never forget these places. He wouldn't let them go unpunished. So verses 8 through 10 describe five different things that Amos says will happen. An earthquake, unexpected darkness, mourning, famine, and the fall of Israel. So in 8, Amos begins this prophecy with two rhetorical questions. We know when he asks questions like this that the answer is most certainly yes. He says, shall the land not tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it? This almost seems silly. Why would he ask a question like this? Why would he say, well, when all these things begin to happen and there is an earthquake in the land, will not everyone mourn? Well, of course. But Israel, to this point, are a people that hold themselves above God's judgment, above mourning and lamenting for sin. He goes on to describe these other things with a series of I am, excuse me, I will statements. Beginning in verse 9, he says that I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning. I will bring sackcloth on every waist. I will make it like morning and only sun and it's in like a bitter day. And there's, there's a lot to these things, more than just the face value, to say that ultimate destruction will come upon Israel in every way, from vegetation to feasts of days of mourning, like mourning the death of an only son. And there's a lot in these verses we can unpack, but I want to move on to Verse 11, because I think it's where the Lord wants us to really dig in tonight. After all of these judgments that Amos has just talked about, the Lord says, I will do these things. In verse 11, Amos says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Right here, I wonder what we consider to be the, the Lord's worst judgment against us. Think about even this last year and the things that you've seen, the things that you've experienced. 
the things where you have seen God correcting you, trying to correct you, the things that you have thought have been painful and difficult to endure. Yet the Lord is saying more difficult than all of those things, more difficult, Israel, than the judgments that I have talked about and that I am sending your way, more difficult than a famine of food or water is coming a famine of my word. I wonder if we wrote down a list of what would be worst in our relationship with the Lord if we would have thought to put down not hearing from him, not understanding him. It says, but of hearing the words of the Lord. A seemingly simple phrase, it is packed with words that have affected Israel's entire existence. This word for hearing comes from the word Shema that has been a theme for us tonight. A theme in the songs we've sung and a theme in Amos. It is the the ing, the ongoing action of Shema. We know Shema means to hear, yes. It means to hear with the implied response of obeying. Next it says, the words. This is the, the plural form of debar. So it would be debarim. This isn't just the utterances of God. This isn't just the sayings of God. This is the understandings of God, the truths of God, the word of God. Combined together, the Shema and the word should draw them back to Deuteronomy 6.4, where Moses is saying, you've just heard the Ten Commandments once again. Hear them, Israel. Obey them, Israel. They are to be written on your heart. They are to be with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. Obeying the Lord's law is to be what keeps you in right standing with him. It is what will prolong your life in the land. It will be what leads you to your inheritance of salvation. The words of the Lord. It's in all caps here because this is the the full name Yahweh of the Lord. So Amos says, the worst is coming and it is a day when the Lord will withhold his word from us. I've been reading this verse again and again because I think that we could understand it differently and many understand it very differently. We could understand it to mean that, that we won't have hearing ability to hear the Lord. That the Lord's word will not go out. That prophets will not speak. That God will not speak. Silence from God. 
that God's word might dry up, that maybe his Torah scrolls will be difficult to find and they will brittle and break. Or that we wouldn't truly know how to truly obey God. And I think all of these have a place because if we understand that that we can't hear from the Lord, really we can't have any of these things. Turn with me to to Genesis chapter 11. In the church's Bible, it'll be on page 11. Genesis chapter 11. I was reading some of the different places that this word Shema is used to, to understand how, how it's understood. And, and here in chapter 11, we know about the Tower of Babel. We know about these people who wanted to be like God, who wanted to build a tower to God, who were so prideful like Jacob that they wanted what they wanted. Verse 7, it says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. This word translated understand is the word Shema. Shema means more than just to hear. It means more than just to take note of. It means to understand. It means to grab a hold of and comprehend and, and know what the value of what one is hearing is. So why would the Israelites not be able to hear? I believe that this judgment was a result of God removing his hand of protection and presence from them. Their seeking the Lord did not come from a repentant and sincere heart to obey. Remember, they're, they're going to these places like Samaria and Bethel, Beersheba and Dan, they're going there to offer worship. Yet their worship is not in alignment with God. Their repentance was not truly one of the heart. So God will cut off their word from them. Or is it that they won't be able to hear? See, there's really no difference between the two. Them not being able to hear is, yes, a consequence of God cutting off his word. But it's really the reaction and consequence of their refusing his word. Deborah and I were talking this week, and, and I was telling her, I remember, and I remember learning that Amos's day. Amos was prophesying in the 8th century, and it was called the Golden Age of Prophecy. I remember hearing that and thinking it was such a silly thing, the, the Golden Age of Prophecy. Well, it's because Amos and Joel and Micah and Isaiah are all coming to Judah and Israel to prophesy in this day. 
Things are so bad that God is sending all of the spiritual reinforcements to bring the good news and judgment of God that they might leave their ways. This week, the Lord has been opening my eyes to to really this question that I've been thinking, and I've been thinking, would God really stop speaking to us or allow us to be confused? See, those are the same thing, right? Stopping speaking to us is the same as confusion. What happened at the Tower of Babel is that God held back his voice. And they became confused. This is the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, have we refused God's ways, his mercy, his correction, to the degree that his word has been made null by our hearts? As a result, has his word been restrained from our ears? Has our hearing been made weak and confused by our welcome of false teachings or listening to the enemy? Are we listening but not hearing? Are we listening but not obeying? Are we reading but not listening? Are we reading but not obeying? Is the Lord talking but we're ignoring? Is the Lord loving but we're refusing? I've been thinking about the reality of this statement that the Lord knows our hearts. Y'all know how I feel about this statement. But this statement has really, really been difficult for me to, to comprehend because if the Lord knows our hearts, he knows better than our words. We can say we want the Lord's word but not mean it. We can say we're waiting on the Lord, but are we? We can say we want his direction, but choose not to receive it when he gives it. So what happens if we disobey the Lord's word? What happens if we refuse his word? The irony of Israel is that they wanted nothing to do with God's word. God had sent his prophets into the land We've read in, in Amos chapters 1 and 2 how God is surrounding Israel on all sides and he's giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He allowed them to survive for a period of time when they were surrounded by hundreds of thousands of miles, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of miles of enemy territory all to continue to give them a chance to know that he is God and know that they cannot stay where they're at or they will be overtaken. So God says he will stop his word altogether to the people who didn't want it in the first place. Verses 12 and 13, it says that they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east they shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but will not find it. I imagine these people wandering aimlessly. Have you heard from the prophet? Do you know where a prophet is? Do you know where a scroll is? We must find the Lord's word, yet it's nowhere. 
Verse 13 says, In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. The strongest and the purest will faint without God's word. God's word is a treasure. If we don't value it, I fear that the Lord won't send it. Can we be trusted with the Lord's word? Is the question the Lord asked me. Can we be trusted with his word? He answered me in Luke 16. Turn there with me. Luke 16 will be on page 1205 in the church's Bible. Luke 16.10 is the middle of a parable that Jesus is talking about the talents. And he says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust in much. Ironic that Jesus' parable is talking about investing money. And Amos' prophecy was to greedy merchants who wanted nothing but money. So the Lord... Lord asked me if we can be trusted with his word and his answer is to say that those who take little and treat it well will be given much. I think about all of the places that the Lord was talking to Israel yet they refused. So he said I'll send no more of my word. And I hear the Lord asking us have we responded to the little he's asked of us? Yet we want the fullness of his word. Be faithful in the little things. God is speaking to us that if we want to hear from him, we have to start by obeying him. 